1: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. Holly Peterson is the best-selling author of The Manny, as well as novels It Happens in the Hamptons and The Idea of Him. She has also written two books for Asseline, Smoke and Fire, Recipes and Menus for Outdoor Entertaining, and Wellington, The World of Horses. Her most recent book, released this summer, is It's Hot in the Hamptons. A former contributing editor for Newsweek, editor-at-large for Talk Magazine, and an Emmy award-winning producer for ABC News, Holly has contributed to the New York Times, Town and Country, Vogue Harper's Bazaar, and many other publications. She currently lives in New York and the Hamptons with her three children. Hi, Holly. Thanks How for, are you,
2: Zoe? Thanks for on, having Mom's
1: me. don't have time to read books. It's so exciting to be doing this live podcast together.
2: I'm really excited to be here. This is my sixth book, my fourth novel. And it's a hopefully fun work of social satire about life in the Hamptons and two moms who decide to go on a summer adventure.
1: It was certainly a lot of fun to read. Thank you. So we're, just for anyone listening, this is actually being recorded at the Children's Museum of the East End in Bridgehampton, and Barry & Co. is supplying our books tonight, and Lauren Gabrielson has given us a whole rack of clothing to choose from. So anyway, we're going to go on with our podcast, but just wanted to a shout out to everybody for that. So Holly, tell us what It's Hot in the Hamptons is about and what inspired you to write it.
2: Well, let me try to explain this all. I am a journalist. I was at ABC News and Newsweek my whole life and I worked for Tina Brown at Talk Magazine, which most people remember by that fabulous party at the Statue of Liberty more than the magazine. (laughs) The magazine went out of business, unfortunately, after three years. But when one is a journalist, I think it's fun to go into fiction, because fiction in some ways actually brings you closer to the truth than nonfiction. And people say, how can that be? And I say, because when you're a television producer, you have all these cameras and sound men and editing rooms. And what happens is, is that, you know, you're limited. You can't go to a dinner party, you can't get into a club. There's all kinds of scenes you can't get into, and you're not allowed to make it up as a journalist. You either have to be there or not, right? Same thing with anything print. You know, you have to explain someplace where you were or where you heard about it, otherwise you have to say reportedly, and it just gives the work less heft, right? Whereas in a work of fiction, if you were trying to do it incredibly accurately, which I always do, I in fact fact fact-checked my novels uh, very carefully, it brings, I think, hopefully the reader into the action in a very true way. And you and I both have spent our entire lives in the Hamptons in summers and on weekends. And... You know, it's such a fantastic place to be. It's paradise with the produce and the shellfish and the people and the beaches. But it's also a complicated place because in this age of just massive inequality, you've got this local community, and then you've got these summer people that come in, like an invading army. And the clashing of classes that goes on in any summer community across America is interesting because you can look at, you know, how people treat each other and how they look at each other and how they deal with people who are you know, different from them, especially in these days that where the country's so polarized. So I like to set books in a summer community, not just because it's hot and fun and sexy and lots of great things happen and food is eaten and hopefully good sex scenes and all kinds of juicy stuff, but also because the basis for it is just really rife with current issues of, as I say, inequality and in class and differences and learning to talk to each other and deal with each other and have problems. And so... My novels that are set in summer communities. My last one was called "It Happens in the Hamptons." This one is "It's Hot in the Hamptons." It's a look at society and where we are today, not just a l i t e light beach read.
1: You included so many different themes in this book. Yeah, I uh, did. one of which I want to just like jump right into is infidelity because mm-hmm. that's where this book starts: is sitting on a bench in Saint yeah. Harbor with two good friends from preschool, mom saying, "You know what? Let's have affairs this summer," which. Already like, oh, but this is going to be an interesting book. Then you followed up with a lot of very specific details of how to execute such mm-hmm. an affair in the Hamptons. Yeah. Tell, tell me how you did your fact checking for this one.
2: Well, I don't know if there was fact checking <laughs> for that element of it, but I will tell you the reason I did that. My last book was really about the 99% and the 1%. And so it was all about a surf community in the Hamptons and the summer people and how, like, water equalizes people out in the water because it's dangerous for everybody. And there's a lot of kind of roiling waves that that cause a lot of problems social and water-wise in my last book. In this book, we were coming off of Me Too, right? And I think that during the whole Me Too period, which, of course very, very overdue, really publicized the harassment and violence and lack of pay equity and all kinds of harassment of all kinds that women endure of all classes at all levels of employment, which was so overdue and so important. I feel that that whole discussion, because people were so into exposing things and being unified and showing solidarity with the victims or the survivors of whatever horrible things went on, huge and small and medium, in level of kind of violence and aggression. But there wasn't room for a discussion of the times when women are in charge of their sexual agency. It was a whole story about the times when we're not and there are plenty of times when we're not. And in fact, I believe people like it, you know, in a patriarchal society when we have less agency over our lives, right? But I wanted to write about the times when we are coming off that and kind of explore that angle of women's sexuality. And so I decided to write a book about two wives who were good moms and good wives and whose husbands are cheating. Okay, and what does one do with that? Do you sit in your room and cry? Do you leave them? Do you feel terrible about yourself? Do you blame yourself? Do you scream at him? How do you handle that? Well, I don't know if there's been a lot of books or movies, I can't really think of any myself, where women have said, okay, we're going to do the same thing, but we're still going to be good moms and we're still going to be good wives, right, in the sense that we're going to meet all our responsibilities and and do what we need to do each day. You know, in, in Anna Karenina, the woman who cheats... Has to jump on the train tracks. And obviously, in Madame Bovary, she drinks ar- arsenic in The Scarlet Letter. She's wearing the Scarlet A in the movie with Richard Gere. Where she's cheating, you know, Richard Gere, like a caveman, has to kill the guy and bash his head in. I'm not sure that I could ever really think of an example in literature or film where a mother who remained a good mother throughout the book and didn't have, like, a perverted boyfriend, as in the good mother, remember that mm-hmm. book? Like, the boyfriend mm-hmm. kind of had this weird moment where he got naked in front of the kid, so he was tainted. I don't know I if there's a... There Uh, was something with Diane Lane. Do you know that? That that? was the Richard Gere one. Oh, that was the same one. But he had to kill, I mean, I felt like he killed the lover, you know, so it wasn't like she was free to do what she wanted. And so I wanted to write a book where the wives do it, and, you know, adventure ensues. I am certainly not pro affair, but if their husbands are doing it, they decide they're going to do it and write a book about what happens. Do they leave? Do the husbands leave? Do they get to, you know, divorce mutually? Do they work it out? But that there's some sort of parody and that women are in charge of their sexual decisions in an age when people assume they can't be or certainly don't want them to be. And so that's the reason I wrote the book and that's why at the beginning they're discussing infidelity. Interesting. And I'm sorry if that was a long answer I but like it, long but answers. it's a question that requires a careful and thoughtful explanation. So that's why I tried to do that just now.
1: And of course what happens after the men it, well I won't give anything away but yeah. You can just imagine that the men don't think that this is like a parody type situation. Of course not. Right. Of course this not. Is not. It's not like a That's tit for what the for book's ten, about. So. You know,
2: it's never it's never that way. Men can cheat and remain their virility and their good husbandness and their good fatherness and yeah. not be tainted, and not jump on the train tracks. And when women do it, it's just completely yeah. explosive. So and,
1: and the men even saying this is nothing personal, like, yeah. but it must be personal for you.
2: Exactly. Right.
1: Like why? And exactly. Then they ask each other why. It's so yeah. interesting. It's, it's like, uh, I
2: mean, just coming off this era. As I said, there's just, there's so many issues to explore about values and morals and what is right and what is wrong and what is parity and what is a victim and what is a survivor and what is a marriage and what is even and what is fair and what is a patriarchy and what is, you know, the future and all kinds of things. So it's a beach read. It moves really quickly, but hopefully there's some heft and substance to it because before your next question, I would really like to say that, you know, women want substance I don't believe they want silly, light beach reads. I mean, it's fun to breeze through a book, and, and these, the, my book is, you know, four pages a chapter and moves really quickly, but I don't believe anyone wants something, you know, silly and unsubstantive or not filled with all kinds of things to think about. So that's what I try to do with my books is pack it with issues and dilemmas. It's
1: a nice mix. Hopefully.
2: I try. I don't know if I succeed, but I try. <laughs>
1: Well, this sort of just builds up the same thing, but I was wondering, you know, with the men starting off the book by cheating, yes, it automatically says, like, marriages, these marriages in particular are imperfect, just to yes. begin with. Mm-hmm. And you had a quote, Joey, Caroline, the main character, loses her high school boyfriend, yes. Joey, in the beginning of the book, we believe, and her grandmother tells her at the funeral, we don't end up with the one we love the most. Mm-hmm. And Caroline repeats that thought to herself throughout the book. Yes. Do you believe that? What do you think about
2: that? I don't necessarily believe that, but I do believe that we all have very serious pangs for one person in our past. Not all of us, but often it happens where there was, it's not so much the one who got away, it's the one who didn't quite work out because it was in college and we moved on, or he was French and had a different culture, or we met them too late and they were already engaged, or or we, we dated them for years, but just, it was just too hard to get married and meld and lives. I mean, and I think the heartbreak over that and the regret over that and the what-ifs over that are just incredibly painful. And I have, was speaking to my daughter earlier today and we were talking about relationships and I said, you know, that feeling of kind of real physical pain and, and a pang, P-A-N-G, you have for someone, it's not a bad thing because it means that that person meant a lot to you. And whether it works out or it doesn't work out, if you look at your old boyfriends and you still feel that really strongly, that's that's not tragic. That's good. That means you chose well for that moment in your life. It's the whole and, better and to can, have loved and lost. Yes. Right? And but you know, it can you can easily get depressed over things that, you know, you don't have anymore or that weren't meant to be or that didn't work out for some reason that you can't even explain. And and to the extent that we can not get depressed over it, but kind of be Grateful that we had time with them and that we remember them with such incredible, you know, strength and vibration still I think is kind of, not to be corny, but like the meaning of life, you know, that you feel these feelings strongly throughout your life for various things and you just try not to let them take you down.
1: I feel like what you're saying is totally applicable to death. It's not just relationships, like the yes. demise of a relationship. It's yes. the same thing, right? You yes. have to appreciate the people. Absolutely. And it's also, you grieve because you grieve the loss of a person in your life. And Absolutely. They're not dead necessarily, but it feels like that. I think yes. that's the heartbreak.
2: Absolutely. Um, it does feel like a death. Absolutely.
1: Anyway. Okay. Well.
2: Not to be incredibly heavy <laughs> here in the Hamptons,
1: but um, um, I agree with everything you just said. For a said. totally mindless question, yeah. in the book, you say that Caroline brings her half-used condom from her fridge in the city out to the Hamptons in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Do you do that? Do you know? Yes. It? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I
2: was- we all have our really strange housewife moments, and when I get, I get up at four and write very weirdly, and I get up in the dark and I kind of wander around my house and I pretend to start writing, but then of course I get completely with three kids preoccupied with dentist appointments and orthodontia and college applications and ACT, blah blah blah, and all this stuff that goes on, and. It's just a very busy time for me in the middle of the night to get all this done. And since I'm not getting emails, I get so much done. So that housewife work is very, very, very intense. And we all have it. And, you know, when I'm packing for the summer, yes, I take things I really love, like the French mustard and the cornichons and, like, all kinds of things off the shelves and throw it in a big box and bring it out because I don't want them to go bad. But anyway, the mom in the book does that, and her husband's teasing her about it. And so there's plenty of silly, inane things that I do and my friends do that are definitely in the book.
1: I was writing this morning at 4 in the morning as Mm -hmm. well. I feel like it's the only time my house
2: is quiet. I mean, it's amazing, you know, this is not a totally obvious thing to say, but I mean, I think people can relate to it, where emails just attack you all day. You know, if the cable TV guy or the air conditioning guy is finally there, and you're in the middle of something, you have to stop what you're doing to, you know, know that he's there to tell him what's going wrong. And you you get notified now by emails, and so you have to check it all the time and be distracted and not get things done. And it's just, it's horrible for all of us. And the only time where the emails are not coming in for me, at any rate, are 4 a.m. to... You know, seven thirty, and that's when I do so some pretty I will pretty not email work. you then.
1: I'll be, <laughs> I'll restrain well, myself. I'd love to
2: talk <laughs> to you anytime, Simmy.
1: Aside from in the middle of the night at home, do you ever go out? Do you ever like go to a coffee shop to write, or what do you do when the day actually begins? Or do you not even try to write when the day begins?
2: I always write four to seven, and I work in the in, morning. In the, yep, I get up about four fifteen or so, and I work intensely at that hour. I drink about seventeen cups of tea, and I have almond butter and bananas, and that's how I do it. And then I kind of do the housewife stuff, get my kids together, dogs together, you know, waste some time on like broken things all over the house. And then I go to the library. And there's a program on my computer called Mac Freedom where you can turn off the internet. You can't go on Google, you can't do anything, unfortunately, but at least no one can bother you. And I hide my phone behind the Encyclopedia Britannica's from the 50s across the room. And I turn on my Mac Freedom and then I can write for a few hours. I go out to lunch. And then maybe an hour in the afternoon, I nap every day. I can't survive dinner without a nap. So even if it's 20 minutes, I have to close my eyes anywhere to kind of deal with my 4 a.m. wake up.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: 72 dollars a month which is so much less than traditional therapy and you'll get a perfect therapist for you there are thirty-five thousand therapists to choose from so you'll find the right one get it off your chest with BetterHelp. visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10 percent off your first month that's better help slash moms don't have time I interviewed a man named Daniel Pink, who mm-hmm. coined this term nappuccino. Yeah. He says if you drink an espresso or a cup of coffee and then take a 20-minute nap, by the time the nap is over, the caffeine
2: kicks in. Oh, that's really so interesting. I you might want to try it. That's really interesting. <laughs> just that's mix so up funny. the napping yeah. if you're a... <laughs> no, I feel drunk by 3.30 in the afternoon if I can't just close my eyes for a minute. It's yeah. unbelievable, but... I'm old, so what no, are you going to do? it.
1: Annabelle, the other character, mm-hmm. Caroline's friend, her mother at one point gives her advice that is, one's 40s are a very dangerous decade, dear. Yeah. So have you seen that with your friends in your yes. social circle? Yes, I
2: have. Okay, so we should probably tell your listeners that the book takes place in the Hamptons. It's from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And did I not
1: ask what the book was about?
2: No, we did. I'm, I'm just sorry. Saying, but I heard, did but I forget that no, question? I, I usually think. start with that. No, no. It's Memorial Day to it's Labor possible. Day. It's two women. They decide to have an affair on Memorial Day at some point during the summer. But what I wanted to say was that one of the women grew up in the Hamptons and the other one is a New York City woman who comes to the Hamptons in the summer. So it's a little bit of an improbable relationship. But the woman that grew up in the Hamptons is the protagonist, her name is Caroline. She she moved into the city and was hoping to move back, but that didn't work out. So Caroline is the protagonist, Annabelle is her close friend. Annabelle's kind of very confident and crazy and Caroline's much more retiring, but they're very close. And it is, you're right, Annabelle's mother who says, be careful in your 40s. The 40s is a dangerous decade. I think very often the 40s can be a time where relationships reassess themselves. You know, in your 20s, you're looking to mate, right? And so you find that cute guy that, you think I really want to share my life with. And, and, and you start your life, and your 30s is all about, you know, working and having babies and, and trying to mix everything up. In the 40s, the kids are kind of in school and on their way. And you kind of, a lot of women, I notice, kind of look around at 42, 43, 44, 47 and say, I'm not so happy right now. I'm feeling neglected by the husband, or I don't really talk to the husband the way I used to in the 20s, or I never really talk to him, and the kids are difficult, and teenagers, and and I'm feeling lonely, and my work isn't going right where I, the way I wanted it to, and, I, and I'm and i kind of itchy for something else, and I'm just not, like, things aren't quite right. And that's often a time when affairs happen, or marriages fall apart, or things get really dicey and difficult. So. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that the 40s are a dangerous decade, but I think it's a decade that is, that is rife with the beginning of a lot of potential complications, because I think those complications are easy to look over in one's 20s when you're really thinking nesting, babies, husband, who am I doing this with in the 30s, babies, 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 and work, 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 you know, and all that stuff, and by the 40s, those two things are somewhat set, and it's time to kind of look at oneself and one's marriage and say wait a minute am i happy here and And i think that's where sometimes the problems arise do you think
1: that the men in their 40s are doing that too
2: absolutely 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 i mean it's a human thing to kind of look at your spouse and say do i feel connected or neglected or hopeful or super depressed because i just don't see this working i mean that's absolutely universal
1: sometimes i feel like when I had my kids, like my head has been so down yeah. that I look up and I'm like, Who are all these celebrities? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I mean like I missed a decade of movies and of like course. like where have I been? Oh we you all know? did. So, we all
2: did. Absolutely. Know, kind of pathetic, I guess, no. but I'm not sure what the answer is. No, everybody <laughs> can relate to that. I mean most parents are, you know, just working and having kids and, you know, very little focus on much else.
1: One thing you did in the book that Startle is the wrong word, but I kept being like, oh, look at that. We're actual, real people who you wove in, are real brands Mm -hmm. in the fiction. So Fred DeVito at Exhale, you take a fictitious class with him. You mentioned Pinhook Whiskey, which is amazing. Yes, Tell me about your decision to do that. And also, do you have to... This is silly, but, like, do you have to ask Fred? Is that
2: okay? Oh, of course. Or? Of course. Absolutely. You know, as I said, I'm a journalist, and so when I'm writing about the Hamptons, I'm hopefully being incredibly accurate about the, you know, the earring and the shoe and the club and the car and the bathing suit and all these things that, that make us all giggle because they're so unbelievably recognizable, and I think hopefully very, very much on point in my novels. But, no, if I put an actual person who's a real person, like Fred and Elizabeth at Exhale, I mean, a lot of... Us women who take classes at XAL have been taking classes there since it was Lottie Burke in our 20s. And we've known Fred and Elizabeth forever. Everyone around me is nodding right now. And so when I put them in a book, I mean, they're dear old friends. You know, I don't really socialize with them, but we laugh a lot and I hug them every time I see them. And I, and I send them the chapter and I say, is, is this okay? And they email I and say, no, Fred would say this and I would wear this. Or, You know, I, I did a whole scene at Navy Beach. I mm-hmm. did a whole scene at Doreas, out in Montauk. I definitely ask them and show them and make sure they're okay with it. I don't make them sign something that says, you know, you can't mm-hmm. sue me for teasing you in an, in an <laughs> exercise class. But they're people I know who, who I think are very central to life in the Hamptons who give it its great, you know, color and... and all that stuff so it's fun to put real people in I mean, it's fun to recognize them don't yes, you think yeah for
1: sure yeah. i was like looking at my calendar for the next day when i was reading your book at night <laughs> cuz i always read before bed i was like what am i supposed to do tomorrow and i'm like oh i have some things some meditation whatever Bob Roth. Anyway, so then I put my phone down, and then I open the book, and in the book, you're like, and then Bob Roth, Transcendental <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meditation to the Stars. I was like, wait, that's the same guy. I guess oh, I should absolutely, go.
2: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So anyway,
1: now I think I'll have him on the podcast. But you
2: should definitely have Bob Roth on your podcast. So how,
1: how long did he's it He's take- very
2: interesting man. Yeah, he seemed super oh, interesting. Fantastic. I went to the event after he's all. He's fantastic.
1: How long did it take you to write this book, and how long do most of your books take?
2: Well— I am a journalist. I worked for Peter Jennings and Diane Sawyer at ABC, and I worked at Newsweek and for a very, very kinetic, frenetic Tina Brown. And my specialty during the 20 years that I was doing all that was being the last minute person. Some people are kind of deeper and more thoughtful than me and do these long cover stories. I never did those kinds of things. I always did the last minute. Called The Crash Producer at ABC, you know, where at four or five or six o'clock I do a piece on that for that night. Same thing in magazines. And so I write very, very, very quickly, and I can write 12 pages in a sitting, no problem. That's a lot of words. It's 2,500 words. And so I write very quickly, but it's kind of usually a mess and then I have to fix it. So I think it takes me about a year to write and edit a book. But again, this is not Elizabeth Alexander this is this great poet who's the nation's poet laureate or David Remnick who runs the New Yorker. I mean, this is nothing like that type of writing. If you're going to write just these eloquent, impossibly constructed sentences as they do and as, as Andrew Solomon does, who I believe is the greatest writer of my generation, who wrote Far From the Tree and The Noonday Demon. If you're writing at that level, that's a completely different story. It takes Andrew 10 years to write a book. Wow. I find my books, I'd really like you to tell me what how you find the writing, but I think it's breezy and fast and kind of exciting and fun and filled with energy, but I don't Believe it's literary. I believe it's deeply on point and hopefully funny, and snappy. But I don't think any of it's literary. And I don't mean to say like no, put myself down that way, like you know, half like fake modesty or something. I just don't. I, I mean, I will. I call it SAT words. If you have like a big fancy word and I put it in, it just doesn't even sound right in my books. It's like trying too hard or weirdly lofty for what I'm doing. I mean, so
1: I think different books. Lend themselves to different styles. And this is perfect for the subject. Yes, it's breezy. It moves. I I think breezy sounds negative. No, not to me. No, not to me. I mean, that's disparaging. Yeah, yeah. Let me use it. And I say two words. <laughs> I, I didn't mean breezy as breezy negative it. for myself. No, it, and that's it's, what I um, meant,
2: like not using false modesty. Yeah. It, it moves.
1: Yeah, it moves. It's, yeah. And it's that's what you need. Yeah. you know, People are so tired. And I feel the like it so tired. takes a while to get people into a book and yeah. to keep with a book. And I feel like short chapters is always the way to go. Yeah. And just like, what's going to happen next? Yes. And well, intrigue.
2: Especially and, these days with so many distractions, yes, right? Yes, for sure. It's so funny. Women come up to me a lot at book events. And they go, oh, thank God. I just need a really light mindless read thank God you wrote this and I'm thinking (laughs) that's not what the book is at all I really don't think it is it's not mindless uh, I think and I don't you know I think that even women who say they want something mindless I don't ever really believe that. I think people want their brains to kind of fire off and be intrigued but they don't necessarily want to have to think a lot
1: right. at 11 at
2: night. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of literature that I try to read. I'm reading Thackeray's Vanity Fair now and it's just wonderful but I have to, you know, i got to really read it because mm-hmm. it's not the type of thing you can skim.
1: I'm doing this thing with my newsletter where if mm-hmm. you sign up, if you answer a few questions about the types of books you like to read, I'll give you book recommendations and I always oh, ask great. like, what you're in the mood for next. Yeah. Everybody is like, I want a light beach read or I want a thriller. Yeah. And all the books I'm doing, like, that's not what most of the books I'm having on my podcast. I'm like, I don't know. I better go start reading a lot of thrillers because I've only done a couple of thrillers. Anyway, but I don't know. Maybe people don't know. I mean, people want a range of things. Yeah, they do. As long as they're reading, I feel like that's great. it's
2: wonderful. So are
1: you working on another
2: book now? I may do a book on the art world. Oh, okay. I may fictionalize it. I think that's what I'm going to do next. And I have been writing columns for the Financial Times they have a weekend section that i think is absolutely spectacular and i think it's wonderful and a lot of people think it it's you know i don't want to say this but it's certainly as good as the times and the and the journal weekend i think and it's it's it is literary and there's a lot of really interesting things on it so i think i may start doing a column quite regularly about the 1% and class structures and inequality and you know dissecting the 1% and kind of how they live and how they got to where they are and what does power mean and what is the interplay between power and money and success and kind of trying to define it and look into it with a mm. kind of somewhat satiric but definitely journalistic microscope.
1: Good luck
2: with that. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's fun, it's difficult but it's fun but I think there's not a lot of people doing that yeah, frankly so they. I've done two in, in May and June and I have two coming up this weekend and next weekend in the Financial Times okay, so that's my next professional venture. Do you have any advice to aspiring writers out there? Oh, my goodness. Listen, I I, I think that everything in life is so deeply intimidating. Even this Financial Times 800-word column, I was just in a panic over it. And I did two, and then I went into more of a panic, and then I did two more, and now I feel a lot more settled. I mean, I just think everything is terrifying. But writing is really something that everybody can do, even though they don't think they can. And I think it's really all about taking kind of the braces off that constrict us and realizing maybe you're not David Remnick or Andrew Solomon or Elizabeth Alexander, but maybe you're funny, or maybe you know a lot about, you know, exercise or food or child rearing or sports or diet or anything. And maybe what you know is very relatable or very helpful to people. Or maybe there's a story you want to tell about divorce or death or infidelity or sadness or feeling neglected or feeling insecure or anything that's deeply human. And I would just encourage people to start with a short story and you know, start with something that's 12 pages and just try to write it down. Or just try to write a blog, you know? Try to write a six- or 800-word blog about your keto experience or your paleo experience and why it's ridiculous or why you need vodka every night or whatever it is. And just see I had the worst where, keto
1: experience ever. Oh,
2: we all do, please. And see where it goes. And then maybe Hamptons Magazine wants to publish it or maybe Avenue Magazine or maybe the New York Post or maybe something that's, you know, easy and accessible will do it. Or maybe you'll, you'll Put it on Tory Burch's website. I mean, or, or Aaron Lauder's, you know, like there's all kinds of fancy fashion websites that are looking for blogs of moms and readers and, you know, Hamptons. And it, it, it doesn't have to be the New Yorker worthy to, to post it and write it. So I would just encourage people just to do it and, and try to get over the insecurities because, I mean, everyone has them. You just have to work through them. Thank you. Well, thank you for having the interview. me. I really thanks for doing this it. event. At
1: thank CV. you. Thanks for writing this great book and bringing the Hamptons to life. For everybody who can't be here, and thanks for coming. On. Well,
2: thank you to the museum for having us. Yeah, it's thank so you important. to TV for having us. Thank, thank you. you all. Thanks
1: again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at Even
0: on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.